Well, good morning, Tulip Street. It's so good to be back with you. And I forgot my coffee, which I desperately need right now. <laughs> Got to clear my throat. Oh, what? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, no, it wasn't the island life. It was getting back to Indiana and being punched in the face by the allergies again. Um, yeah, so many of you know that uh, Caitlin and I celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary this past week with a getaway. And so thank you for everybody that commented your well wishes and your, your um, congratulations and all that stuff on, on Facebook and everything. It was, it was a wonderful time, but we are glad to be back with you. And I'm, I'm grateful for Josh for taking over last week with the sermon. I thought he did an excellent job. And I also want to thank Tyson and, and Shannon, who's not here today, but as he mentioned, uh, we are collaborating with the worship team to um, kind of do this series on worship through the book of Psalms this summer, and each lesson has a corresponding song to the psalm. Uh, if you are into music, if you love that kind of thing, and you want to know where you can find these and listen to them... Uh, so the song last week was by a group called Poor Bishop Hooper. And as Josh mentioned, they undertook a project to make a more contemporary, modern type song for every single psalm out there. It's phenomenal. Um, it's very acoustic, kind of indie sound to it. So if you're into that thing, I think you would love Poor Bishop Hooper. Uh, most of the rest of the songs that we do are by the group Shane and Shane, which many of you may be familiar with. They put out tons of excellent worship music, and they have three albums in particular. They have Shane and Shane. They have Psalms Volume 1, Psalms Volume 2, and then they have songs, hymns, and spiritual, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So those three albums... Uh, have the songs that we're going to be touching on as well. Um, if you're like, that's too much for me to look into, then I can post a, uh, I can post a YouTube video playlist on our uh, Facebook page. So you can just find that and listen to them at work or whatever, find them. Uh, they're excellent. Uh, but today we are in Psalm 8, as was mentioned earlier, Psalm 8. I love that song by Shane and Shane based on Psalm 8. So thank you, Tyson, for leading us in that. <clears throat> it started out with a dream, a collection of what-ifs. It would become a project 25 years in the making, with a budget ballooning from a mere $1 billion to over $10 billion dollars. It's one of the greatest collaborative achievements in modern human history, overcoming countless hurdles, engineering nightmares, and threats of cancellations along the way. But after countless man hours from the brightest minds across Europe and North America, the dream became a reality. This project was completed in 2016, but it would still need another five years of rigorous testing and troubleshooting. Finally, on Christmas Day 2021, the James Webb Space Telescope was launched into space as thousands looked on with breath held and fingers crossed. The what-ifs 
became what now? The JWST took its time getting into position, a mere 1.5 million kilometers from Earth, orbiting in what's known as the L2 Lagrange point, if you're into astronomy. As its sun shield unfurled and its mirrors activated, any number of things could have gone catastrophically wrong. Astronomers and NASA scientists let out a collective sigh as all systems were active and online with no major issues. And then came the images. On July 11th and 12th of last year, so right at 11 months ago, the world saw for the first time images like this. The cosmic cliffs in the Carina Nebula. A young star factory about 8,500 light years away. Or this, the Southern Ring Nebula. A brilliant cloud of gas and dust expelled by a dying star about 2,500 light years away. But this one blew us all away. This is Webb's first deep field. If you just Google that, Webb's first deep field, this is the image that pops up. The points of light that you see with six lines coming out of it, those are stars within our own galaxy. Everything else in the image, every other point of light, is a galaxy. Some more distant galaxies look warped and bent and curved due to gravitational lensing of the immense galaxy cluster in the foreground. It's about four billion light years away. By the way, this image covers a patch of sky approximately the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length. One, uh, to quote one astronomer working with the James Webb Space Telescope, there is no empty space. Everywhere they look, there's galaxies. Everywhere, there's something there. So we spent $10 billion and 25 years to develop the most powerful and sophisticated piece of equipment ever devised, only to remind ourselves of one truth, one thing, that we are small, so very, very small. Before the James Webb Space Telescope, there was Hubble. Many of you may have seen that one. But before Hubble, <laughs> there was the Voyager 1, launched in the 70s, but in 1990, I think it was Valentine's Day of 1990, Voyager 1 sent this image to us. It's a deep space telescope that was launched in the 70s, and as it's zooming out of our solar system at 3.7 billion miles away, it turned around and took this image of back home. This image came to be known as the pale blue dot. We are there. The, uh, Carl Sagan famously had this to say concerning this image. He said, look again at that dot. 
That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor, explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in history of our species, lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. We're small. <laughs> but even before the Voyager spacecraft, there was the Apollo moon missions. On Christmas Eve, 1968, William Anders on the Apollo 8 mission captured this image, commonly known as Earthrise. From this viewpoint, one astronomer declared, the vast loneliness is awe-inspiring. And it makes you realize just what you have back there on Earth. We are small, so very, very small. And it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not in human nature to want to feel small. We want to feel big. We want to feel strong and powerful. We want to be known and loved and respected. We want to make a name for ourselves, even if it's only in our little community. We want to know that we will be remembered when we're gone. More than that, we want to pretend like we'll live forever. We've wanted to make a name for ourselves and make something great since the beginning. In the garden temptation, the serpent entices Eve by telling her she can be like God. A few generations later, later generations would attempt to build a tower to the heavens to make a great name for themselves. Is there anything we can't do? We're amazing. That kind of eternal glory is something we've always sought after. Maybe you've heard this poem by the author and poet Percy Shelley, husband of Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. But he wrote this one. It's probably one of his more famous poems. This is called Ozymandias. Percy Shelley writes, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped in those lifeless things, the hands that mocked them, the heart that fed them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand 
stretch far away. Look on my works in despair. So goes the way of each human endeavor. Kingdoms rise and fall. Empires come and go. Wealth accumulates and vanishes. We are dust, and to dust we will return. That glory we seek after always seems just out of reach. It's somewhere out there, beyond our ability to grasp. Is it any wonder so many billionaires want to go to space? That's the only thing left for them. They've gotten everything this world has to offer. There must be something more out there. But despite the best efforts of Musk, Bezos, Gates, Zuckerberg, or Buffett, the glory they seek will always elude them. They will end up another Ozymandias. Because we are small. So very, very small. But here's the secret. We're supposed to feel small. We are supposed to feel small. That's the point. And David knew this. As a shepherd boy, I imagine he looked up at the night sky, the same night sky we see today. He didn't know about galaxies or black holes or asteroids or gravitational lensing or nebula or the speed of light. And some of you are like, I don't even know those things. I get it. But he looked up. And when he looked up, he wrote this. If you are able and willing, let's stand together and let's read together the words that David wrote in Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the spiritual beings and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the sky, the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. You may be seated. How ridiculous, <laughs> excuse me, how ridiculous is it that the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in between would care about scrawny, little, microscopic, insignificant me? How absurd, how naive, how utterly unbelievable, impossible even. But since when has believing impossible things ever stopped us. To quote from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. I love that line. And I believe 
If we look closely at this psalm, Psalm 8, David is inviting us to believe some impossible things. Utterly impossible. For one, the first impossibility, I think, is that David claims God has established a stronghold against his enemies through the mighty praise of babies and infants. It can't be right, can it? Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. That's what he says. You see, God is in the business of using the weak, helpless, and small things in life to demonstrate his might and power. It makes me think of Israel, the Hebrew people, when they were just babies, so to speak. God delivered them from Egypt, and yet they found themselves between an overwhelming army on one side and an impassable sea on the other. And God told them, just be still. I will fight for you. In another instance of imminent threat, the nation of Judah was surrounded by her enemies. But God, through his prophet Isaiah, gave them a sign that everything was going to be okay. And that sign? A young woman was going to give birth to a baby. And once that baby was old enough to eat solid foods, the threat will be over. Send in the babies. Don your battle diapers, whatever. I don't know. It's, it's a bizarre image. It's a great reversal. Nobody would think of doing something like this, and yet God is in the business of using the weak and the helpless to demonstrate his might and power. There's another point. The praise of children and infants has to be the purest, holiest kind of worship there is. Have you ever heard a bunch of kids sing, Jesus, love me, at the top of their lungs? That sound of crying babies and laughing children reassures us that God has the future in his hands and that we're going to be okay in the end, whatever it is we're facing. The second impossibility, impossibility number two, is that God actually does care about you and me as individuals. That's crazy to think of. David believes God actually does care for us. For me, for you, and you, and yes, even you. I'm not sure what fills me with more awe and wonder, the breathtaking beauty of creation or the fact that the creator of it all knows my name. He says, when I consider your heavens, and the works of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them. The literal words are, he uses are, what is man, or the Hebrew word Adam, and the son of man. It's not just about humanity in general, it's about David as a person, and it's parental language. God is mindful of you and cares for you as a father. In other words, God loves you. More than that, God is love. David is far from the only one who believed we could know something about God by looking around at his creation. Jesus reminds us that God cares about the sparrows, but he loves us more. God clothes the wildflowers with immense beauty. 
the lilies, the iris, the every, everything that's blooming right now. Irises are kind of past, but the lilies and the hostas and everything's just springing to life. Maybe all your perennials that you planted are in full bloom right now. And yet he considers us his crowning achievement. Paul reminds us in his letter to Rome, for since the, since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. But consider this. The fact that we can even consider the heavens and the majesty of creation is a gift in and of itself. The author John Green in his book, The Anthropocene Reviewed, which I love, highly recommend, it's a series of essays on the human-centered planet where he takes every aspect and ranks it on a five-star scale, which is hilarious. Um, he includes a chapter on our capacity for wonder. He bases this chapter, reviewing our capacity for wonder on a five-star scale, on a quote from The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald who writes, for a transitory, enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent, compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commiserate to his capacity for wonder. John goes on to write, we are never far from wonders, I remember when my son was about two, we were walking in the woods one November morning. We were along a ridge looking down at a forest in the valley below where a cold haze seemed to hug the forest floor. I kept trying to get my oblivious two-year-old to appreciate the landscape. At one point, I picked him up and pointed out toward the horizon and said, look at that, Henry, just look at it. And he said, weef. I said, what? Again, he said, weef, and then reached out and grabbed a single brown oak leaf from the little tree next to us. I wanted to explain to him that you can see a brown oak leaf anywhere in the eastern United States in November, that nothing in the forest was less interesting. But after watching him look at it, I began to look as well. And soon... I, and I soon realized it wasn't just a brown leaf. Its veins spidered out in red and orange and yellow into a pattern too complex for my brain to synthesize. And the more I looked at that leaf with Henry, the more I was compelled into an aesthetic contemplation I neither understood nor desired, face to face with something commiserate to my capacity for wonder. Marveling at the perfection of that leaf, I was reminded that aesthetic beauty is as much about how and whether you look as to what you see. From the cork to the supernova, the wonders do not cease. It is our attentiveness that is in short supply, our ability and willingness to do the work that all requires. John gives our capacity for wonder three and a half out of five stars. <laughs> I would have rated it higher. This capacity for wonder, our ability to consider the heavens and the moon and stars, 
doesn't just capture our attention for a while. It has the ability to literally transform us. Psychologists have discovered within astronauts, of which I will never be among that number, a phenomenon called the overview effect. Have you heard of this? The overview effect. It has, uh, let's see. Uh, these lucky few get the exceptionally rare opportunity to view Earth from space. This can lead to a heightened appreciation and perception of beauty, unexpected and even overwhelming emotion, and an increased sense of connection to other people and the earth as a whole. The effect can cause changes in the observer's self-concept and value system and can be transformative. When these lucky few get the chance to see earth from space, it changes everything about them and their perspective and what they believe and hold dear. The overview effect often has the additional positive benefit of increasing feelings of altruism, selflessness, and philanthropy. When they return, they want to be better people, to take care of those around them, and to protect the planet itself. Sometimes we just need a new perspective on things. And this unique perspective is not easy to replicate by any means. Researchers have tried to duplicate the effect by using virtual reality, but with mixed results so far. There's something about seeing it with your own eyes in real time, out in space, looking back down at this pale blue dot. But isn't that what worship is about? The overview effect makes us feel small, but increases our love. Our capacity for wonder makes us feel profound connection to everyone and everything around us. When we consider the heavens, the works of God's fingers, it makes us feel ins insignificant and yet known and cared for. And that's what worship is all about, y'all. The third impossibility. The third impossible thing David believes is that God has given us the glory for which we all strive. It's above the heavens, always out of reach, and yet God has given it to us. And not just given it to us, but crowned us with it. You've made us a little lower than spiritual beings, he says, and crowned us with glory and honor. And you made us rulers of the works of your hand, and you put everything under our feet. Do you now see the foolishness of humanity's striving for greatness and glory? It's not just the fact that one day we will be forgotten. It's not just that our legacies won't last. It's not just that everything we work for will ultimately end up in a landfill. No. The foolishness is in the fact that God has already given us the very thing we strive for. It's just like what the father says to the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. Do you remember that? The father goes out to the older brother and he says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. And I believe that's something God says to each and every one of us. Just sit with that for a moment. You are always with me. And everything I have 
is yours. Live in that reality. God says to you and to me, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Psalm 8 serves as a reflection on the creation stories of Genesis 1 and 2. On the sixth day, God created mankind, men and women, in his image and in his likeness to be his co-rulers over all creation. God's very spirit is breathed into our lungs to bring life and freedom and agency. God looked over all of his creation with mankind as his masterpiece and declared it very good. We are small, so very, very small. But God chose to use our smallness to reveal his glory, his majesty, his sovereignty, his wisdom, and his love. Paul reminds the church in Corinth that God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. The fourth impossible thing. The fourth impossible thing we are invited to believe is that this psalm, written a thousand years before Jesus, is ultimately about Jesus Christ himself. Not David, but the writer of Hebrews urges us to, to see Jesus in Psalm 8. Hebrews 2, 6 through 9. But somewhere, someone somewhere has testified. I love that. Like, okay, maybe we preachers don't have to have book, chapter, and verse memorized for every single thing, right? If Hebrews can do it, we can, right? Someone somewhere has testified. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. Sounds familiar, right? He goes on. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Christ came as a baby, not as a conquering king, born to peasants in a stable, not born to royalty in a palace. His message was one of hope, a new kingdom in which children set the example of faith and love. His movement would turn the world upside down. It's all about reversals. His mother Mary knew the great reversal was coming in which God would lift up the lowly and humble the mighty. Mary declared in Luke chapter 1, he has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Jesus' ministry was all about reversals. Psalm 8 is all about these great reversals of changing our perspectives. <clears throat> There we go, lost my place. Jesus, after submitting himself to death on the cross, was vindicated through the resurrection and exalted 
through the ascension. He was crowned with glory at the Father's right hand and was given the name that is above every name. God is in the business of elevating the weak and vulnerable to positions of power and authority. Jesus said as much in the opening lines of his famous Sermon on the Mount when he said things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And Christ, through his humble obedience, has been exalted and has been given, quote, all authority in heaven and on earth. I think Paul sums it up best in the opening chapter of Colossians when he says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Compared to Christ, we are small, <laughs> so very very small, but we are loved, so very, very loved. Which leads us to our final impossible belief, that God invites us all into this story. That this isn't just something that other people participate in. This is our story that God is encouraging and inviting us to live out. God invites us all into this story these feelings David had about 3,000 years ago are universal feelings. We want to become big and chase after our own glory, but that always eludes us. Yet God, through the small and weak things of this world, has chosen to crown us with that glory, and he invites us to explore. When F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote the lines, about the earliest settlers coming to the new world and witnessing, quote, something commiserate to his capacity for wonder. <laughs> Space travel and penicillin and electron microscopes and nuclear fusion hadn't even been invented yet. Our capacity for wonder isn't determined so much by what we see, but rather that we see, observe, and contemplate. In other words, every time we look up, not at this blank, boring ceiling, but outside in your backyards on a cloudless night, every time we look up at the night sky, or every time we marvel at a new James Webb Space Telescope image, or every time we witness a baby taking her first steps, or every time we extend and receive love, our capacity for wonder grows, and all that's and that's what a life of worship looks like, is growing and expanding our capacity for wonder. And that's what leads us to proclaim yet again, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.
I want to close with one last poem. Tyson, if you'll come on up. I want to close with one last poem by the famous American poet Walt Whitman. If you're familiar with Walt Whitman, wrote the old, Oh, Captain, My Captain, tribute to Lincoln. But I came across this poem of his called, When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. And I want to close with this, and then we'll stand and worship one more time. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were arranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I, sitting, heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became tired and sick. Till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself in the mystical, moist night air, and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. Would you stand and worship with me, please? Mm -hmm.